Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Um, I'm not going to read those. We're gonna, I'm going to preach from this passage. I'm not going to read all those verses. Uh, I'll explain the context of those verses here in a minute. Uh, I've, I haven't preached from this passage, but I've referred to it, and maybe you've heard me refer to it on a handful of different occasions. It's that well-known passage where Jesus is invited by Simon the prophecy over to Simon's house for dinner, uh, and town prostitute hears that Jesus is in town and uh, crashes the dinner party and has an encounter with Jesus. Um, And I'll give you more detailed context in a second. Um, But as I thought through and prayed through what we would study together after we finished Unmasked, our study on the Ten Commandments that we finished two weeks ago, um, I was going through some old stuff of mine, and I was thinking through where we are as a church and what we just learned by studying the Ten Commandments, and um, and I decided that this would be this would be the next logical series to preach. Um, irreligious. It's a strange word. In fact, there was a bit of discussion at our staff meeting this week about whether or not it was even a word. Okay, um, and if it is, how to pronounce it? How do you pronounce it? Um, well, it's pretty simple. Irreligious. Okay, it's right there on the screen. It's not like trying to pronounce chivigen. It's much easier than that. Okay, uh, irreligious. Um, so that's how it's pronounced. Secondly, it is a word. Okay, just for the skeptical among you, it is a word according to the Oxford Dictionary. Irreligious means hostile to religion. And I want to show that no one was more hostile toward religion than Jesus was. Okay, that's going to be sort of the overarching goal of this series. That no one was more anti-religion than Jesus. I want to show that Jesus turns everything we think about God and Christianity, everything that we assume to be true about God and Christianity upside down. I want to show how Jesus completely flips the script on what we have always assumed and been taught, probably, about God and Christianity. But I need to begin uh, by saying something about the word religion itself. Because over the years, and I've always used the word religion in a negative way, um, and I've been doing this for years. And over the years, every time I've said something negative about religion or made a distinction between religion and Christianity or religion and the gospel, someone always pushes back with James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Always. Let me read to you what James Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So clearly, at least in verse 27, the Bible or verse 26, no, verse 27, the Bible uses the word religion positively. So why would I use the word negatively? Now, if you paid careful attention, and I'll unpack this here in a second, 
to verse 26 and 27, even James uses the same word in one verse negatively and in the next verse positively. In verse 26, he's using the word negatively. He's talking about empty practice, empty ritual, empty confession, um, false religion. And then in verse 27, he uses it positively. Um, So uh, why would I use it negatively besides the fact that James justifies my negative use of it in verse 26? Um, But let me answer that question, why I would use it negatively uh, by asking a few other questions, okay? So a few questions that I thought about yesterday. In the Bible, is the word religion ever opposed to the gospel? Ever. Or is the main idea of religion opposed to the main idea of the gospel? Ever. In the Bible. What about um, what people hear when they hear the word religion? What comes to mind Is it the gospel? Is it grace and redemption and forgiveness? Or is it a bunch of things you must do for God to get God's love, to appease God's anger? Well, if the answer to any of these questions is yes, then making a distinction between religion and the gospel is absolutely crucial. Crucial, in my opinion. The same Greek word translated religion in James chapter 1, verse 27, is used negatively in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, where it describes false worship. And also in Acts 26, verse 5, where Paul, the apostle Paul, speaks of his pre-Christian life, and he says, I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. So in at least two other places outside of James chapter 1, the word is used negatively and distinguished from Christianity. It's distinguished from the gospel. So you've got religion over here, you've got Christianity, and specifically the gospel over here. But throughout the Bible, the idea of religion is the idea that we have to do certain things, that we have to practice certain religious um, rituals in order to gain God's favor. So even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, for example, were devastating in their critique of empty rituals that were designed to secure God's love and to appease God's anger. Well, that's the way I'm using the word. I'm using it negatively to describe the false idea that we have to do certain things and become a certain way in order for God to love us, that we have to get right, get clean, and get busy if we can ever hope to be on God's good side. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about religion negatively. And let me add this. Um, When... When people hear the word Christianity, uh, specifically people outside the church, but also many people inside the church, when they hear the word Christianity, um, they think religion, okay? Because Christians, in my opinion, sadly, uh, have done a really poor job uh, describing Christianity as something that God alone does for sinners like you and me. And so as a result, when people hear about Christianity, they think, well, Christianity is for good, clean people who do good, clean things for God. That's what they think. 
And if you're self-aware at all, you will come to the conclusion that you're not good and clean, and therefore, Christianity must therefore not be for you. I mean, that was my story. Uh, I grew up in my home. I didn't hear this kind of messaging, but in the churches that I grew up in and the Christian schools that I went to, the, it was never explicitly stated this way, but what was implied was that Christianity is for good people. And I knew I wasn't good. And therefore, I concluded Christianity must not be for me. And so I walked away at 16 years old. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized um, I walked away actually before I was 16 years old. But uh, it wasn't until later in life that I realized God uh, loves and uses bad and weak people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people, okay? Which was incredibly relieving to me. Um, But when you say... Christianity, most people think Christianity is about me and what I need to do for God. And so, uh, if the gospel is ever going to reach people in our day, it has to be distinguished from religion because religion is what most people think Christianity is all about. Rules and standards and behavior and cleaning yourself up and working for God and so on and so forth. So if we want people to hear the gospel, we have to let them know it's not religion in that sense. So this series is intended to distinguish the religion of just do it with the gospel of it is finished. That's the goal. Um, So that's the elongated introduction to this new series, Irreligious. Um, over the years, in fact, even in the last couple of years, I've had a handful of friends walk away from Christianity. They just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, they quit. They gave up. The Christian themes of God's unconditional love and redemption and forgiveness and grace got replaced by a graceless, do more, try harder religion. And so, understandably... They gave up. They quit. I was telling the guys on Wednesday night that um, legalism produces lawlessness 10 times out of 10. People think that it's grace and it's the message of God's unconditional love delivered to them in the person and work of Jesus that creates licentious behavior. Not true. Legalism causes lawlessness 10 times out of 10. Do more, try harder doesn't get people to do more and try harder. It gets people to give up. And that's what's happened with a handful of friends of mine. But what my friends are rejecting isn't Christianity at all. They're rejecting a religion of works that puts the focus on what we need to do for God. That's what they're rejecting. And I've told them, That if Christianity is about me mustering up the willpower to be a better person, then I'm walking away too. That's not what it is. You see, religion isn't about God, ultimately. It's about me. We We hear the word religion and we think, oh, this is about God. It's about God and sacred things. Religion, at its core, is not about God. It has nothing to do with God. It's about you, it's about me, it's about me and my behavior, my obedience, my faithfulness, my devotion, my improvement, my commitment, and so on and so forth. It's what makes up the content of most sermons, 
most Christian books, and most social media posts. I see it all week, every week. Religion's main message is our need to do more and try harder for God. It's all about earning and deserving and scorekeeping and measuring progress. Religion has no room for failure and weakness. It may give lip service to Jesus hanging on a cross for us, but its emphasis is you and me climbing a ladder for Jesus. That's religion. Um, Well, if that's what religion is then believe it or not, Christianity is emphatically not religious at all. In fact, Christianity contradicts religion, contradicts it. Christianity is not a message about you and what you need to do for God. It's a message about God and what he's done for you. That's the essence of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not fundamentally about keeping a moral code. It's fundamentally about a God who saves people that fail to keep the moral code. Okay, that's what it's about. In other words, Christianity is fundamentally about Jesus, not about you. Christianity is all about grace, and grace defies religious logic, defies it. It has nothing to do with earning or merit or deservedness. Grace is opposed to what is owed. Opposed to it. Grace is love coming to you that has nothing to do with you. Grace has nothing to do with weights and measures. It doesn't use sticks and carrots. It doesn't keep score. Grace is a liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. A liberating contradiction. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. That's what grace is. Grace has everything to do with the one who gives it and nothing to do with the one who receives it at all. Um, Grace is the opposite of fairness. Grace is one-way love. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. And no one battled against religion and for grace more than Jesus. No one. Jesus was the most anti-religious figure who ever lived believe it or not. The atheists and the tyrants over the course of history and the agnostics, they were not the premier enemies of grace and promoters of religion. They, they no, I said that wrong. They were the premier enemies of grace and promoters of religion, believe it or not. Maybe not religion in the way that you think about it, uh, but religion in the sense that this Everything in life is about me and what I do and what I can secure and what I can achieve. Um, Well, in this famous passage, we see Jesus redefine who the religious people think God is. So, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36 and down through verse 38, uh, the scene is set. Jesus gets an invitation by Simon the Pharisee to come over for dinner. 
uh, with Simon and a few of his Pharisee friends, and they're kind of checking Jesus out. You know, Jesus, they notice that there's something different about this guy. He seems like he knows what he's talking about, but he doesn't really fit the profile of the Messiah. And so they invite him over, and they're kind of feeling him out, and they're getting to know him, and they're trying to discern whether or not this is the one that was promised long ago through the prophets, this messenger of God, this rescuer of God that would come and clean up the mess we made. So they were kind of wondering. They were, they were trying to see if Jesus was the one. And at some point in the dinner, the, the town prostitute barges through the door, falls at her feet, cry, falls at Jesus' feet crying and begins washing his feet with her tears, drying his feet with her hair and anointing his feet with perfume. And of course, the religious leaders are scandalized by this. Absolutely scandalized by this. I mean, they spent their, their religion was staying away from people like that. Okay, uh, the audacity of this woman to think that she can barge through the front door uninvited to a dinner where the guest of honor is perhaps the son of God was just that was mind blowing to them. Um, and then, of course, in verse 39, we see Simon's response to this. He's basically saying, if this man really was God, he would not let this woman touch him. If this man was God, he would know who this woman is, and he would not let her touch him. Simon concluded that Jesus must be an imposter, because God would never embrace this kind of filth, ever. That was his assumption about who God is. Simon and his response sums up a religious view of God. That God is for clean people. God is for good people. God is for competent people. Set aside that Simon was completely blind to the fact that he too was a sinner and no better than she was. Okay, just set that aside for a second. Um, the idea that God would love a sinner was inconceivable to him. Inconceivable to him. That's religion. And sadly, you find that inside the church more than anywhere else. I hear story after story, week after week, of people who screw up, whose lives tank for whatever reason, who feel abandoned and uninvited to church. They feel like their Christian friends have um, sort of distanced themselves from them. You go through a divorce, you're inside the church, you go through a divorce, you know what I'm talking about. Most of you, if you've been through a divorce, most of you who have been through a divorce know that. Uh, if you've done something stupid, if you have a particular addiction, if, if people find out things about you that you don't want anybody to know. Sadly, church has become the scariest place rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down. Well, all that is is an expression of who we believe God to be, which is no different than Simon at all. I mean, how could God, God is holy and righteous and perfect and infinitely clean. How in the world, if this truly is God, would he ever embrace filth like this? So, lest we give Simon a hard time, <laughs> uh, we tend to be similar in some ways. Um, 
Mike Iaconelli, who's now dead, um, wrote a book. He wrote a number of books. One of my favorites is called Messy Spirituality, which I highly recommend. It's short. It's easy to read. Messy Spirituality, Mike Iaconelli. Um, he said this, and I love this. This is one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole book. He said, according to his critics, Jesus did God all wrong. He went to the wrong places, said the wrong things, and worst of all, hung out with the wrong people. Jesus scandalized an intimidating elitist religious club by opening membership up to those who had been denied it. What made people furious was Jesus' irresponsible habit of throwing open the doors of his love to the whosoevers, the just anyones, and the not a chancers like you and me. I love that. Um, it reminds me of that line from Francis Spufford where he says, um, Christianity uh, or the church is not intended to be a place that gathers up the clean people because there are no clean people. <laughs> we get it wrong. Interestingly, in the Bible, story after story, passage after passage, it's the immoral person who gets the gospel before the moral person. You ever notice that? <laughs> it's always the, the bad guy who runs to Jesus. It's the good guy who hates him. Um, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15 in a few weeks. And the first two verses of Luke chapter 15 have quickly become, in the last 18 months, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. We'll get there. Um, but it's, it's always the people who know they're weak who run to God not the people who think they're strong. Those two verses in Luke 15, 1 and 2, clearly show the people who flocked to Jesus and the people who hated Jesus, which is why I love them. Such a clear, um, such a clear distinction between the kinds of people who went to Jesus and the kinds of people who couldn't stand Jesus. Um, it's the people who know they're weak, over and over in the Bible, who run to God, not the people who think they're strong. So in... The parable of the prodigal son, for instance, it's the unrighteous younger brother who understands forgiveness, not the self-righteous older brother. It's the one who wasted all of his father's money and did all sorts of bad things that are unspeakable uh, in the far country. He's the one who gets grace. He's the one who gets the gospel. It's the brother who kept all the rules, did all the right stuff, and thought he was owed a party that didn't get it. He was blind. He was religious. Uh, it's the people, over and over again in the Bible, it's the people who know they are um, impure who get grace, not the people who think they are pure. And this is one of the reasons why I love hanging out with people who are in recovery for some sort of substance abuse. Love it. Because I have come to the conclusion after spending a tremendous amount of time uh, with those brothers and sisters that the desperate addict is closer to the heart of grace than the devout moralist. <laughs> they just are. I mean, I would so much rather sit in a room with people who know they're bad than sit in a room with people who think they're good. So much more. I mean, they're just the, the people who know that they're weak rather than the people who think that they're strong. You know, do you ever be you ever around people who just think they're always right, think they got it all together, um, believe that they're strong? I mean, they're annoying, okay? 
You know what? They're not encouraging. You don't leave the company and go, wow, I feel so... You feel like you don't measure up. You feel more alone. You feel like you're not understood. Man, you sit in a room with people who are sinners and know they're sinners and feel the freedom to talk about the struggle of life and whatever that may be. Jeez, I mean, those are the kind of people you want to be around. You walk away from their company, you go, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this world. I'm not alone in my struggle. My, I mean, some of the best some of the best people that have helped me over the years when it comes to marriage are people whose marriage is hard. <laughs> because it's like, okay, so I'm, marriage is hard. No matter who you're married to. For some, it's harder than others. I understand that. Uh, for Stacy, it's hard. For me, it's not. Okay? <laughs> so I understand that. Um, but I mean, when you have two sinners... Coming together, two sinners have more sin than one sinner, okay? It just stands to reason things are going to be difficult. And the people who have helped me over the years, the articles, the people, the counselors over the years that have helped me are people who go, dude, I, I you know how many times I was ready to throw in the towel? And I'm like, really? You? I, I thought you kind of nailed this thing. No one's nailed it. There are people who pretend they've nailed it, and there are people who admit they haven't nailed it. Um, but it's the, it's the people over the course of my life who have, who have been in the ditch, who have struggled. When I was going through my divorce, it was people who had been through divorce that helped me the most. Um, when I've dealt with issues regarding my children, it's been people who had issues regarding their children who helped me the most. I mean, that, that, that's just the way it is. Um, and so it's, it stands to reason that uh, the, the desperate addict, the struggler, is closer to the heart of grace than the devout moralist. Robert Capon, my favorite writer of all time. I mean, he's like genius in his writing and in the points that he made. Um, I love this line. The Pharisee is the kind of person that every church would be happy to welcome as a member. He does everything he's supposed to do. I mean, that's true. You know, someone like Jesus, he may have a hard time getting through the front door. He's just so unconventional and he hangs out with such rabble. But the Pharisee, you know, the one who tithes and keeps his word and does everything he's supposed to do and feels good about it. Those are the people that churches love to have, sadly. Um, as someone once said, the devil's masterpiece is the Pharisee, not the prostitute. And we see that here in this story. Um, the prostitute walks into a party of religious people and falls at the feet of Jesus without any concern for what others are thinking and saying at all. She, she doesn't care. I mean, she's, she's undone, completely undone. Um, a dear friend of mine by the name of Steve Brown had a mentor by the name of Fred Smith. And Fred uh, was just, he was a real father figure to Steve. Um, and I remember Steve once telling me that Fred, when he would go to men's groups, would ask this question. If you got arrested for drunk driving on Friday, and it was on the front page of the paper on Saturday would you go to church on Sunday? 
okay? Now, Steve's answer to that question is, what, are you crazy? <laughs> no. And Fred would respond to Steve and say, you realize how stupid that is, right? I mean, that's like getting into an accident where you're mangled and telling the ambulance driver to please stop at your house on the way to the hospital so that you can clean up and put on nice clothes and wipe the blood off so you can be presentable when you get to the hospital, okay? It's about how silly that is. Um, the prostitute was acutely aware of her guilt and shame. She knew she needed help, and she didn't care what it looked like to other people. She just didn't care. She was desperate enough to not care what other people thought. She was at the end of herself. She wanted to be clean. She needed to be forgiven. And she came to Jesus knowing that he would help her. Knowing. I mean, she didn't... She, I, would, I can only assume that she believed the Pharisees, the religious people in the room, would look at her like she was a piece of trash. But she knew Jesus wouldn't. I don't know if she met him before. This passage doesn't say. It doesn't indicate that she had ever met him before. But she knew enough about him to know this man will not turn me away. This man will not reject me. He will help me. I need help. He will help me. She didn't go to the religious leaders and say, I need to get right with God. Can you please show me the way? Okay? She didn't do that. She didn't even say a word. As far as it's recorded here, she didn't even say a word. She just fell at his feet, started crying. Her tears said everything that needed to be said. Everything. Um, and what... I love about this. I mean, Jesus is just such a rabble rouser. He's so rebellious, which is why I love him, you know? So rebellious. He just, he ticks off all the right people, you know? That's what I love about him. Jesus, in front of these religious people, okay, points to the prostitute and says to Simon, you have it backwards, brother, you think she needs to become clean like you. But I say you need to become aware of your dirtiness like her. I mean, he just flips the script, totally. They're sitting around very pompous and proud, clean, good. They've got the best reputation in town of being the most God-fearing people. And this prostitute barges in. Who knows? Maybe she just ran from someone's bed and felt guilty about it. Uh left the money on the bedside table, and ran to Jesus. Who knows? She shows up, and Jesus goes, um, I know, Simon, that you think in your heart of hearts that she needs to become more like you. But I'm telling you, I mean, he says that explicitly here. He says, you need to become more like her, not the other way around. Wrecking every religious category Simon and we have, Jesus tells Simon that he has a lot to learn from the prostitute, not the other way around. Um, that's the kind of stuff that got him crucified right there, okay? I mean, that's the reason why they made up, the religious community made up elaborate lies about him. 
They just couldn't stand. I mean, he was falsely accused from top to bottom. Forget the fact that they were violating the commandment not to lie during his trial. They didn't care. The end justified the means. Get this guy out of here. His life was a spotlight on all of their hypocrisy. (laughs) All of it. And they just, they liked living in the shadows of their own reputation, their own well-manicured, manufactured reputations. They loved it. And when Jesus came around, they were like cockroaches when the light gets turned on, just scampering for the floorboards. And they're like, just, we got to get rid of this guy. He's ruining everything we've built. Um, so wrecking every religious category Simon had, I mean, I just, <laughs> I just, I love this. So I'm like, man, I mean, this, you know, this guy probably thought he was doing Jesus a favor, inviting him in. Come to dinner at my house. You might learn a thing or two. Me and all of my well-educated religious buddies, you know, we're going to evaluate you. We'll see what you're all about. We're going to discern whether or not you are who you say you are. Why don't you come over? We'll feed you. We'll talk to you. We might even listen to you. Little did any of them know, Jesus knew, little did they know that this woman was going to completely crash the party. And what they intended to be a night of evaluation ended up being they were evaluated completely and thoroughly. They were wondering whether or not they would expose Jesus for being fraudulent. What happened? They were exposed for being fraudulent. Jesus flips the script. And we're going to spend, I don't know how many weeks, maybe six, maybe ten, I don't know, uh, looking at this kind of thing because I am absolutely convinced that if the church in its current state does not realign its primary messaging with what we discover here, with God's primary messaging, it's going to become increasingly irrelevant and die off. And I hope it does become irrelevant and die off if that's the case, honestly. Um, So this is crucial. That's not just crucial for our lives. It's crucial for the ongoing relevance and realness of the church as an influencing community for the next few generations. Um, Let me just conclude with this. Cancel culture, all the rage, okay? Obviously, it has been for a while. Um, It's the idea, you know, cancel culture, if you're unfamiliar, I'm sure you are, but if you're unfamiliar, it's the idea, mostly associated with well-known people, that if someone does something stupid, says something stupid, maybe it was yesterday, maybe it was 20 years ago, that they are um, culturally canceled. Um, and, uh, And there are lots of, uh, moral police out there evaluating whether or not someone should or should not be canceled. Um, it drives me crazy. Okay, it's it's insane to me. Um, insane. It's it's just the whole movement just reeks of radical self righteousness. It's disgusting to me. Um, well, unlike our current cancel culture, Jesus, rebel that he was, was unwilling to cancel the worst of the worst, the baddest of the bad the guiltiest of the guilty. In fact, Jesus befriended, loved, and touched the outcast, the misfit, the leper, the liar, the sexually deviant. 
He refused to reject those who had been rejected and denounce those who had been denounced. Our countercultural savior would have nothing to do with cancel culture at all. In fact, some of his closest friends were what caused the religious people to question Jesus' authenticity. Like, God would never hang out with people like that, <laughs> ever. But there is one kind of canceling that Jesus was all about. Colossians 2, verse 14 says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In that sense, Jesus was all about canceling. Maybe this is the reason why Jesus himself was canceled by his culture and by our culture. Maybe. The, the scandal of his promiscuous love toward the unlovely is just too vulgar for a culture that has to find some solace in dealing with the uncomfortable log in their own eye by constantly pointing out the speck in someone else's. Constantly. That's the big difference between Jesus and cancel culture. While our culture cancels people who have done terrible things, Jesus cancels the terrible things that people are canceled for. That's just, I mean, I love that. In case you can't see. I'm going to say that again. While our culture cancels people who have done terrible things, Jesus cancels the terrible things that people are canceled for, okay? Nailing it to the cross, Colossians says. The sins and scandals that cancel culture chooses not to forget, Jesus chooses not to remember. That's the difference. And that's what the religious people in this story just couldn't wrap their head around. This woman deserved to be canceled completely, cast out like a leper, cast out. Well, that's the difference between religion and the gospel. The relig religion points fingers and the gospel gives hugs. It's a huge difference between those two things. What Jesus does remember and never forgets is that he is the friend of sinners the brother of the outcast, the God of 70 times seven forgiveness, and the Lord of redemption. He proves that in this story, and we'll see week after week how he proves that in every encounter he had. Let's pray together.